in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. First of all, today, before I begin, uh, uh, I need to mention a couple of things. Um, I always have these these little little notes, and I forget about them, and then I run out of time. And the first thing I want to do today is remember to thank my engineer, Frank Sterling, who is a Sterling character, we all know. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks, Frank. And the other thing I have here, let's see. Several people have written me notes about a documentary, the one that's on PBS on cable television. Let's see. I think it's an HBO. Wait a minute. Yes, it's HBO. Oh, dear. I wish everybody had HBO. It's the... The one about the Triangle Fire in the Shirtwaist Factory a hundred years ago, you remember. Uh, the horrific, horrific tale, uh, 146 people died. Most of them were young women. And they were in the Shirtwaist Factory in Manhattan. Um, there are some still pictures, uh, of course, of some of them leaping from the windows, they held each other and jumped. And uh, the date was 1911, yes, the Triangle Fire. And the reason to watch it, of course, is just to um, review your notes on uh, the strike. It leads directly to the current brouhaha, you know, the one in Wisconsin, uh, always these uh, well these girls were striking and this is back in the day before women even got the vote and there'd been some some big brouhaha's with the police and then of course there was this horrific event and uh people actually registered the fact that these women were working in sweatshops and that they were locked in at their sewing machines. Uh, I think the thing that stays with me from that uh, program was not just the pictures, the, the women holding each other, but the, uh, the documentarian said that many of the women, before they jumped, I mean, they not only held each other, they, they clutched their purses they took hold of their purses and jumped i can't help but think that meant that they thought they might survive god only knows anyway the world is still a sweatshop uh check that one out if you're interested the other little item i have here someone asked me in a letter oh ages ago uh who was paying for the right wing operations you know we're having this this uh we're having this uh what do you call this this lurch to the right here in our country and i would just refer you to something in the new yorker back in august of 2010 it's dated 30 august 2010 
It's called Covert Operations. Not covert at all. It's a long article by Jane Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. Jane is super, super, uh, she has this article, Covert Operations. It's in the section Reporter at Large about the billionaire brothers who are waging the war against Obama and the uh, current administration, but, you know, against the left in general. Anyway, um, let's see, one of the brothers is uh, dead now. Um, David and Charles Koch, K-O-C-H, Koch, I believe is the way it's pronounced. Oh, the picture's fascinating. He looks like, good God, he looks like Michael Caine. No, can't be poor Michael Caine. Anyway, uh, if you want a, a long and detailed article on how the money gets uh, filtered, well, mostly it's about the think tanks and all of the things, how they have bought the mind and the media, the popular mind and media. Oh, clever boys. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Today, I had thought, uh, the last couple of days, I had wanted to speak about the unspeakable, the catastrophe in Japan, but I, I can't, I can't talk about it. Uh, actually, there's another New Yorker article in the current issue, uh, the one with the cover that says, Dark Spring. It's the issue of 28 March, 2011. And, of course, uh, the New Yorker, as always, gives us pages of detailed information. Uh, it's not just the pictures. Um, <laughs> as their editor, David Remnick, says, there is no pain we will not publish. Uh, this whole article, of course, throbs with history. It's more than I can bear. Maybe, maybe in time there will be something to be said about this, at least when we know whether or not we can drink the water next year. Today I want to do what I did years ago when the Rwandan genocide was the disaster of the day and disaster de jour. At that time, I remember uh, Jackie Kennedy died and she, uh, her death and... Uh, departure got more media coverage than the genocide in Rwanda and so I turned to the subject of Jackie Kennedy even as Lake Victoria filled with the bodies of the dead the lake was almost destroyed anyway you remember President Clinton apologized uh, several years later uh, he had said well we were just sitting in our offices and we just didn't quite register what was going down anyway. Today, I need to be a uh, a movie critic. <laughs> yes, today I want to talk about Elizabeth Taylor. The death of a film star. Boy, oh boy. Talk about nostalgia. Back in the day, we used to say. I always wondered... Were Elizabeth Taylor's eyes violet or ultramarine? 
I don't know. Uh, did you see the shot? It was on television of Elizabeth Taylor receiving the order of a dame of the British Empire. She received this at the hand of Queen Elizabeth II. The two of them in their respective costumes. Queen Elizabeth II in her uh, wonderfully dowdy uh, older woman get up there and uh, Liz still looking like a, uh, what you call that, uh, uh, one hell of a dame, I guess, uh, a dame to die for. It was funny because even even her vulgarity was classy. That is, she enjoyed it, all that um, nonsense, leaving that trail of wine glasses and diamonds everywhere she went. Uh, I guess, I guess she, what is it, she was doing a send-up of her own shtick. Uh, it's not easy being sleazy. Scandal is part of her job description, you remember. Uh, actually, Elizabeth Taylor was a skilled film actor. Even her uh, twice-husband, Richard Burton, said so. I watched uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf last weekend just to be sure I remembered it right. She's got one scene there where she hollers at uh, the young man she's just uh, taken to bed. Yes, she hollers. Yes, just a gigolo. Everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. She is what I would call a body. For real. Uh, obviously, she had to prove that she could get down and dirty uh it's funny because I remember Richard Burton saying people didn't realize what a great actor she was, of course, because she was so beautiful they couldn't get past that. I think um, I think of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and compare them with Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. I remember Laurence Olivier, uh, he said to Richard Burton, he said, what do you want to be, uh... A great actor or a household word? This is when Burton was pursuing Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Richard Burton said both, I guess. Anyway, uh, both Elizabeth Taylor and Vivian Lee were great film actors, but they were not particularly athletic. Uh, obviously, Liz could ride a horse in National Velvet and all, but uh, the two men were powerful stage actors. Uh, Vivian Lee kept getting sick. She was consumptive and uh, very frail. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor tried to do uh, the lead in Little Foxes. She lost her voice and became ill. Uh, actually, though, she did a splendid Shakespeare on film. Check out Taming of the Shrew if by any chance you haven't seen it yet. I think it's absolutely just, I think that they hit it out of the park with that one. Uh, she and Richard Burton, they also did uh, some unsuccessful films that I loved. Uh, Dr. Faustus, you got that one. Oh, and there is a um, uh, much underrated, uh, Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas. 
Uh, you'll hear Elizabeth just, just briefly, briefly. Uh, she's the dead, the long dead lost love of Captain Cat in Under Milk Wood. Uh, actually, both of those women, Vivian Lee and Liz Taylor, had some luck with the Tennessee Williams plays. Uh, there's one play, actually, the original title was 27 Wagons Full of Cotton. And the movie was made, uh, it was called Boom, B-O-O-M, why I don't know, Boom. And it has Elizabeth Taylor off on an island. Uh, it was notoriously unsuccessful. It pops up on cable television, and I think it's terrific. Uh, it has Elizabeth Taylor dying, and a death angel arrives to help her. And that would be Richard Burton, of course. There's also a scene with Noel Coward. He's carried in on the shoulders of this huge servant, something. Anyway, what you get is a, um, what would you call it, a couple of huge monologues from the two of them. It's existential angst from beginning to end, but... Elizabeth Taylor is, uh, what is that? Not just dying, she's disintegrating. And she needs a lot of help. The other one, uh, the one that uh, Vivian Lee did so successfully was the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. Now, Tennessee Williams was quoted as saying that that was the best he'd ever seen his work done in film. Uh... I like it better than Vivian Lee in Streetcar Named Desire. The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. Yes, it's about a woman who um, is having, well, not a last love affair, but <laughs> you talk about a gigolo. She has Warren Beatty. She picks him up, and he's completely miscast. I don't know what he's doing in that show, but uh, I still love the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone because it gives Vivian Lee a chance to act and not just to play a male fantasy the way she does in most other things. Actually, I loved what Vivian Lee did in a movie called Caesar and Cleopatra, which she made. Uh, it's um, from a play by George Bernard Shaw, and it had Claude Rains as Caesar. You remember, uh, she's sitting under one of the paws of the Sphinx. And Caesar arrives, um, Claude Rains, and she keeps hollering at him, you know, all gentlemen, she said, the Romans will eat us, come up here and talk to me. It's uh, completely absurd, but it's still one of my favorite uh, films. Uh, actually, Liz, Liz Taylor is such a strange combination of Hollywood and the real thing. I mean, I think of her trying to be, what is it, a real theater person along with Richard Burton. If there'd been a little less booze and a little less 20th century nonsense, they might have had uh, a better life in the theater. Uh, I think her, what is it, her legacy or contribution seems to be her work for the um, AIDS community, she was, um, what is that? Uh, oh, there are names for that sort of thing. She was a friend of gay males. And everybody I know has uh, frivolous things to say about that, you know. 
the sort of thing where they said, well, they, they told Liz how to be seductive, that kind of thing. But I just think of her incredible friendships, um, her great love for Montgomery Clift. Uh, there was a story that Liz Taylor crawled in the back window of his car uh, to hold his head. He crashed his car, wrapped it around a tree or something after he left her house one night. And she thought there was something wrong. She went after him and uh, she uh, held his head back so that he didn't drown in his own blood. She very possibly saved his life. Uh, I guess she was athletic enough for that. But if you think of her friendships with people as disparate as Rock Hudson and Mike Jackson and uh, well, Michael Jackson that's a hard one uh, obviously they both knew what it was to be uh, <laughs> hounded by the media but I think mostly well let's see her first friend would be Roddy McDowell the adorable uh, kid who was <laughs> the little boy in the Lassie movies they were both British, and of course, uh, they were a little bit of uh, outsiders here in Hollywood. Uh, I think this stuff is fascinating. There's a, a book, by the way, Richard Burton has written a book, mostly it's his letters. And uh, it would appear that he wanted to be a poet or a writer. He felt that being an actor was not quite, uh, not quite as important as it would be to be a poet. Uh, actually, I think Richard Burton was a great actor. Elizabeth was furious when he didn't get an Oscar when she won hers for Virginia Woolf. Uh, she also got one when she played a prostitute in Butterfield 8. But uh, anyway, the obits have been pretty silly. Uh, they, of course, paint her as a drama queen. She did have four children. Seems to me she was quite a maternal kind of person. Uh, that's not the sort of thing that people like to make a fuss about. Uh, she had to hold her own in a man's world, and I think it made her kind of tough uh, on the surface. I guess a film, a film star is as close as anyone gets to immortality. I think of all that vulnerability that she had to hide uh, for some reason last night. I was watching Joan Crawford in a movie called Bad Cargo, and Clark Gable is reading to her from the Song of Solomon, you know, about her eyes and how lovely she is. And she's playing a, a tough, snarling broad, and she begins to weep. And for some reason or another, I thought of all these women who had to tackle Hollywood and, you know, what it did to them, what it... Uh, took away from them uh of course they were invested in their looks that was the biggie but uh Elizabeth Taylor was certainly not a narcissist uh she knew that her beauty was part of the uh, package uh she was of course an Aphrodite absolutely 100 percent uh incredibly in breathtakingly beautiful all that black velvet hair uh <laughs> and as Reagan once said, film is forever. The film stars, they will be around, my gosh, uh, as long as we are, I think. Uh, unless, of course, you're a poet. Now, Burton did want to be more than an actor. Somebody once said, 
that uh, a woman, an actress, an actress is always a little more than a woman. And an actor is always a little less than a man. And that's a hard one. I just think of Richard Burton's Welsh heritage. And I suppose that's one of the reasons. Well, he had that beautiful voice. But I guess he felt there was something missing. Uh, anyway, I saw him here in the 1950s in San Francisco in a production of Henry V. He hit it out of the park. Yes, St. Crispin's Day speech there. It was uh, long before his drinking days. They say that his early death was partly the result of a back injury. He got soccer fans nearly, nearly killed him. You know how that is. I wish he hadn't gone to all those soccer uh, games. I have some notes here on the wonderful Sandy Dennis in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I have to skip them because I'll run out of time. Check out. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And if you think you know something about that movie, write and tell me. Because I loved Sandy Dennis, the star in the $7 dress. She got another picture called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I just like to contrast her acting style with Elizabeth Taylor's. I remember being in classes with Sandy Dennis in the 50s in the Herbert Berghoff studio back in New York. She was an amazing creature. Uh, I think of the, what is it, I think of the sad movies, the the ones that Liz made with uh, Monty Clift. Raintree County, you know, it was awful picture. He was still, it was badly scarred from the accident. And suddenly last summer, where he played the psychiatrist, that was another Tennessee Williams picture, uh, made no sense at all. Uh, Catherine Hepburn miscast, but it had Elizabeth doing her thing. Uh, I remember the early days. I remember Elizabeth Taylor as the angelic little girl who died uh, in the cruel boarding school. You remember that uh, in Jane Eyre. She's accused of vanity, and they put a sign on her saying vain and cut off all her curls, and she has to stand in the rain all night, and she catches pneumonia and dies, and little Jane Eyre falls asleep holding her hands, and she wakes up with the cold, dead child's hand still in hers. Now, that thing scared me, something awful when I was a kid. That one scared me worse than Scarlett O'Hara's mother being dead in the next room. That one scared me when I was 10. And I just thought about it this morning because I have a dream that history was different, that history, uh, that uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who would have been about seven at the time, was given the role of Vivian Lee's daughter, Bonnie Butler, in Gone with the Wind. And it fixed that movie. That little girl in Gone with the Wind was absolutely terrible. She had a horrible, whiny voice. And I certainly hope she's not alive. Or I don't think that uh, it's nice to ask a child to act when they can't. Uh, anyway, I just wish that had been the beautiful, lovely... Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, that would have changed the whole movie. I love Jane Eyre. You know, she, once the, the little girl died in, 
in uh, that scene. Let's see, they ask her what she should do to avoid going to hell for her sins. And she says, I must stay in good health and not die. <laughs> anyway, I remember seeing Elizabeth Taylor as Velvet Brown in National Velvet. And I thought it was a pokey movie, but it was much loved here. The bride pictures with Spencer Tracy were unbearable to me. I loved Ivanhoe. She had that green velvet dress and the eyes. Also, I loved something called Ash Wednesday. It was a dreadful film about a woman who has plastic surgery to get her husband back. And in comes Henry Fonda. And she says, look at me, look at me, look at these breasts. She's been completely remade so that she has glamour and she wants to cast a spell again. And uh, he says, yes, but you're still in there. <laughs> anyway, uh it's very curious, that picture, Ash Wednesday. Uh, it was never popular. Nobody liked it. Of course, the great early masterpiece was A Place in the Sun. It shocks me still to realize she was 17, maybe 18, when that movie was made. She still looks like a child a little bit. Uh, it's made from Theodore Dreiser's famous novel, An American Tragedy. You remember Shelley Winters and Montgomery Clift in that one. We're supposed to be all about the American caste system, about class, you know. I'm not sure it succeeded as far as being uh, a movie about, what is that, uh, materialism, the money, money thing. It was there, but uh, I think that one needs a remake. Anyway, uh, I just think that Elizabeth Taylor needed a director. I guess maybe Richard Burton should have done it. Uh, so they could do some of the great plays. She made 50 movies. And I think that her performance in private life kind of outdid her performance on screen. I would just love it if I could. Well, I like to imagine all the things she might have done uh Movies that actually wound up, well, let's see, Ava Gardner, Jennifer Jones, Hedy Lamar, all the dark, dark hair, dark eyed women. Uh, anyway, she will be remembered, of course, for movies like Giant. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, there's not too much to be said about the death of an, a legend, except that uh, we seem to create them and then somehow we kind of, kind of destroy them. There's something about our culture. Uh, what is it? Uh, kill the king every eight years. Uh, I remember noticing how mean people were to some of the British actors. <laughs> one of the, one of the, the, uh, oh, what was it? One of the plays down in Laguna Beach when I was a teenager, oh, it had Roddy McDowell starring in it. And he went to the bus stop next door and asked the lady for a package of pell-mells. Yes, pell-mells, he said. And she said, Paul Malls, honey, you're in America now. I remember shuddering and thinking how rude we were compared to these elegant, elegant Brits. And then, of course... We finally figured out that the Brits could be much bawdier than we are. 
Uh, the other thing I had for you tonight uh, was, let's see, Nurse Jackie has returned to Showtime on Monday nights. That's a send-up of the medical establishment. I don't know if it's going to improve. And the other show is uh, Mildred Pierce. Would you believe they're remaking Mildred Pierce? It bears absolutely no resemblance to the movie with Joan Crawford. That was a uh, murder thriller noir picture. This new one on HBO has uh, a beautiful, what do they call it, still evolving Kate Winslet as Mildred. It's a kind of feminist fairy tale. Five hours long. I've seen the first two hours. It's a little bit dry. But the the period stuff, the authentic stuff, is wonderful. I'll be back on the air next week. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Investigative journalist Mark Danner is coming to the stage for KPFA. He'll be discussing his new book, Stripping Bear the Body, Politics, Violence, War. It's a moral history of 25 years of American power, from Haiti to Kosovo to Iraq. The event is Friday, April 1st at 7.30 p.m. in Berkeley's First Congregational Church at Channing and Durant. That venue is wheelchair accessible. The tickets are $12 at local independent bookstores, online at brownpapertickets.com, and on the phone at one 800 838-3006. That's Mark Danner on April 1st. Hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teaker. See kpfa.org for details.